Okay, Romans chapter 13, I will read the first seven verses. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes do, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So a brief recap of Romans 12, 9 through 21, where we were uh, two weeks ago. Um, we just finished Romans 12, and in that passage we looked at what I call the marks of a true Christian. And we had a few of them there. A true Christian is one who loves genuinely. We see that in verse 9. Uh, and avoids evil while clinging to what is good. A true Christian loves others in the Christian church, outdoes one another in honor in the sense of you showing honor to another. You want to outdo one another in showing honor to each other, uh, worshiping fervently and seeking to be of service to the broader Christian community. A true Christian does not curse others, but blesses others when they curse them. And they show empathy and they seek to live harmoniously with all of their neighbors be at peace, if at all possible, with all people. And then finally, a true Christian does not return evil for evil, but leaves vengeance to God, and they seek then to overcome uh, evil by being overcome by good. So to overcome with good and not evil. Now all of this, as we've been saying all along, is for the last few weeks at least, flows out of what we learned in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. These verses, as I said, form the very foundation of all Christian behavior and practice. And we are to live lives then of a living sacrifice to God based on his manifold mercy. So based on the rich mercies of God, therefore, we live our lives as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God, which is our spiritual or reasonable uh, service to him. So the Christian life is one of a whole self Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, your whole self, a whole life dedicated to God in response for his great mercy. And then this dedication is expressed in uh, living lives of nonconformity to this present age. You have your minds transformed, not conformed by the renewing of your mind. And that renewing of your mind comes through the spirit working in and through the word. Okay, well, now I want to just take a, before we get into this uh, passage this morning, I thought it might be helpful to look at what our confessional standards have to say about, the, uh, or as the Belgian Confession says, the magistracy or the civil government or the civil magistrate, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says. And a couple of things before we do this, 
Uh, first, we need to understand a few things. Up until the end of the 18th century, so that would be the 1700s, right? Up until the end of the 18th century, with a few exceptions, the civil government has almost always been some form of monarchy, some form of rulership by a single individual, maybe by a group of individuals, but they held supreme authority. So you had kings, queens, emperors, dictators, pharaohs, etc., right? And all authority rested in that individual. In fact, even in Europe, right before this period of time, they believed in what they called the divine right of kings, that the king was ordained by God and held a particular, his rule and reign was then therefore justified whatever he did because he had the divine right of kings. So this idea of a democratic or a republican form of government is a, recent, is a relatively recent innovation in the history of politics and a relatively recent phenomenon in human history. And the reason I say that is because the Bible was written during these periods of monarchic rule, right? The Old Testament, the Pentateuch was composed while Pharaoh was king in Egypt. Um, you know, you had rulership by Jewish kings. You had rulership by foreign kings who invaded Jerusalem and, and exiled the Jews. And then most of the New Testament, in fact, almost all of it, was written under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Paul writes this section here of subjection to the governing authorities while Emperor Nero was in power. No friend of Christianity, if you know the stories of Nero, right? He persecuted the church. One of the heaviest persecutions of the Christian church occurred during the reign of Nero. Third thing to note is that even these confessional standards were written during monarchic periods. Now, while the, pow the, the, the power of the Holy Roman Empire, which, as R.C. Sproul often likes to say, was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, but anyway, while the, you know, the power of the Holy Roman Empire was waning, you had the rise of these nation-states. So England, France, and, and all these other nation-states, the particular nation-states of the German provinces, were, were, in the, in, you know, were in, on, the, on the rise. They were in full swing. And fourth, that means that our particular American context will alter, and actually has altered, in the case of the Westminster Standards. When, when the American Presbyterian Church was formed in 1789, any, anybody else remember what happened in 1789? No, close. The other document. Constitution. Constitution was ratified in 1789. Uh, the Presbyterian Church was also formed in 1789. And they had to alter some of the things in the Confession of Faith to fit an American context. So the, you know, the fact that we're in an American context will alter how we apply the principles that we see here in Romans 13 as well. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Now, first, let's look at the Belgian Confession, because that's our primary, um, well, the Heidelberg's our primary confessional standard, but the Belgian Confession was actually composed first. And in Article 36, it begins with a statement that teaches, because of our depravity, God has established human government as a check to our fallenness, to punish evil and protect the good. That's what you see there in that first paragraph. We believe that our gracious God, because of the depravity of mankind, 
has appointed kings, princes, and magistrates, willing that the world should be governed by certain laws and policies to the end that the dissoluteness of men might be restrained and all things carried on among them with good order and decency. For this purpose, he has invested the magistracy, that's a hard word to say, with the sword for the punishment of him who practices evil and for the protection of those that do good. In fact, you now have a reference there to one of the past verses we're going to look at, Romans 13, 4. It then goes on to say in that second paragraph that the magistrate is to protect and promote the work of the church to spread the kingdom of God. So their office, the office of civil government, is not only to have regard unto and watch for the welfare of the civil state, but also to protect the sacred ministry that the kingdom of Christ may thus be promoted. So they didn't believe in a separation of church and state, right? Like we have here, and actually what we talk about when we say separation of church and state is a radical separation of church and state, and we'll get to that a little bit more later. But here, the reformers believed that the civil government was to support the work of the church, not to usurp the work of the church, not to ignore the work of the church, but to support it. So they must therefore countenance the preaching of the word of the gospel everywhere that God may be honored and worshiped by everyone as he commands in his word. Thirdly, we as citizens are to subject ourselves to its authority and show honor and pay taxes and also pray for them. In the third paragraph, moreover, it is the bounden duty of everyone of whatever state, quality or condition he may be to subject himself to the magistrates, to pay tribute, to show due honor and respect to them and to obey them in all things which are not repugnant to the word of God to supplicate for them in our prayers that God may rule and guide them in all their ways and that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And finally, there is a statement here against those who are expressly against any form of government. So they detest the Anabaptists and other seditious people uh, who reject the higher powers and magistrates and so on and so forth. Now, if you flip it over, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 33. It's going to say a lot of the same things here. Now, they say a few different things, but they're going to say a lot of the same things here in chapter 33. So again, the, the Westminster, like the Belgic, can, begins with a statement of the supreme authority of God and that he has established civil government for the public good. So here, God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his glory, and the public good, and to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. Then section two states that it is lawful for a Christian to serve in civil government that need to be exemplary members thereof. So that's something the Belgic doesn't address, but what the Westminster is saying is you're okay if you're a Christian to serve in the civil government. There's no rule or law or commandment of God that you're violating if you serve in the civil government. You're not, you're not at a conflict of interest. Again, because they're going to say the same thing that the Belgic does, is that the civil government is there to support and promote the work of the church. Then section three essentially teaches that each institution, church and state, has their sphere 
in which they operate, and that the magistrate is to protect the church and give it room to work. So we're going to talk about this a little bit later too, this idea of sphere sovereignty, and I'll get to that in a moment. But here in section three, civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments. So that is the particular purview of the church, the administration of the word and the sacraments. The state is not to engage in that. Okay. Now, a lot of this, you have to understand, was written during the mid-1600s when the Puritans were trying to further reform the English church because they had reformed, but according to the Puritans, they hadn't reformed enough. <laughs> so they wanted more. And there was always this you know, thing in England where the, the monarch is the head of the church, and, and there was always this worry or concern that the, church, the, the state would somehow start meddling in the affairs of the church and start taking over some of their tasks. So they, they don't have the, the power of the, or the administration of the word and sacrament. They don't have the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven or, or in the least interfere in matters of faith. But this is interesting. Yet as nursing, nursing fathers, I just, just noticed that this morning right now. Nur, how many fathers nurse? <laughs> have you ever, fathers, have you ever nursed children? I have it. Okay. Anyway, yet as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest. Again, particular context of that period in England. You had Church of England, you had Presbyterians, you had Congregationalists. Those were the Puritans kind of over against the the, you know, the Church of England. So, you know, the idea is they wanted religious liberty. They wanted religious freedom, the ability and the, the freedom to practice religion, not as the way the Church of England did. Because at the time, the Church of England kind of ruled over all things. And if you were not a member of the Church of England, it was illegal to do anything. That's why John Bunyan was in prison, because he was not of the Church of England. Anyway, it goes on and talks about how the, the magistrates to protect the church and give it room to work. And then finally, in section four, it calls on Christians to submit and pray for the government, similar to the Belgic. So that's the confessional statement. This is what the Reformed churches believe and have taught. Um, and it is, you know, I mean, it's still part of our confessional standards. So it's still what our church and other confessionally Reformed churches are to believe and and how they are to interact with the church and state. So now as we head into this passage this morning, we'll try not only to explain the text, but also how it applies in a 21st century American context. But we need to remember that the principle remains unchanged. And that principle, as we see in verse 1, is to submit to the governing authorities. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, verse 1. So again, the principle here is not hard to understand. Every person, literally every soul, is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. So how many persons are supposed to be in subjection to the governing authorities? Every person. Do you see a loophole here? I don't see a loophole here. Now, allow me to engage all of my seminary training and all of my vast years of biblical study and all of my skills in interpreting the Bible and exegesis and interpret this phrase using my expert analysis. 
Every person means every person. Now, you probably didn't need me to tell you that. Right? You're like, why didn't you go to school? I could, have, I could have gotten that reading the text. True. Now, it is a mild point of interest here that Paul uses the word psuche for soul instead of a word like anthropos for man or human or person. But here, Paul is using soul as synonymous with person. Okay, in, in the book of Acts, when that great uh, work of the Spirit comes and everyone's speaking in tongues and then Peter preaches and then the people are cut to the quick and they say, what shall we do to be saved? And Peter tells them, repent of your sins, be baptized, every one of you, for the salvation. And then it says 3,000 souls were converted that day or 3,000 persons. But the phrase here, be in subjection, or you may have be subject to or submit is the operative phrase. If my duty to the state is to be in subjection, I want to know more about what that means. So the word there for subjection or be subject is the Greek word hupotasso. It's a military term that essentially means to line up in ranks. So when people say, if you're in gym class, if you remember in high school gym class, they would say, line up by height, let's say, you know, for whatever they wanted to do. So you get all the tall people all the way down to the not-so-tall people. I guess you can't say short. You might offend people. So the tall people and then the vertically challenged people at the end. Okay, That's lining up in a sort of ranking system. Or they'll say, you know, you go to your classroom. Okay, line up in alphabetical order. So you can, okay, what's your name? You know, of course, in Sutton, you have like a, a ton of Gs, right, for all the millions of greases that you have. And and then so on and so forth. Here, it's lining up under a particular order, ranking. Okay, who's at the top, who's next, 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 and so on. So it has come to mean to obey, to submit, or to be subject to. It's the same word that is used in Ephesians when it says, children, obey your parents. Again, line up in rank under them. Your parents are over you. They are superior to you in authority. You line up under them. It is not the same word for husbands or wives submit to your husbands. It's a different word. Governing here, the governing authorities, literally to the authorities, the ones who are superior in rank to you, means to be, yeah, that word there, huper echo, it means to be superior, to excel, or to surpass. Now, this is not to be understood as being qualitatively better, but higher in authority. It's not that the people who are in authority are better human beings, that they're more worthy of honor because they're just them. It's because they have been given an authority. They have been uh, bequeathed an authority or an authority due to their office. So similarly, like as a pastor, I'm not a better human being than anybody in this building. But my authority resides in my office, not in my person. So that's the principle. As Christians, as those who are living sacrifices to God, we are to subject ourselves to the governing authority. Now, you may ask yourselves the question, well, why is Paul saying this? Why is he belaboring this point? Well, I've got two possible reasons. The first is because of our remaining sin. Even as believers, we struggle with remaining sin. Romans chapter 7, all over again, right? The good that I want to do, that's not what I do. And the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I do. So our flesh wants to rebel against all authority. 
I may have used this example before, but if you're walking and you see a sign on the grass that says, keep off the grass, that triggers something in you if you're like me and you want to walk on the grass. <laughs> you're like, how dare you tell me not to walk on this piece of grass? I'm gonna, now I'm going to stomp all over this grass. We want to be autonomous. We want to be a law unto ourselves. That's the point. That's the whole purpose of the fall, right? The fall was rebelling against the authority of God. And ever since then, we have been rebelling against the authority of God. The second reason is that it's also tempting as Christians to think we don't need to obey sinful, unbelieving rulers. That could be a temptation. It might have been a temptation, then, particularly with Nero as the emperor. Why should we obey the Roman government? I mean, he's persecuting Christians. He's, he's evil. Why should we submit ourselves to an evil ruler? We're going to get to that in a moment. But the point is, is that we do have to submit ourselves even to sinful, unbelieving rulers. Now, this is not a command that is isolated to Romans alone. It's found in other places in Scripture. You might want to take note of these references. Titus 3, verse 1, where Paul tells Titus to remind the church there, remind them to be subject to rulers. It's the same word, to be subject to. To be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Or 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Again, Peter says, submit yourselves, the same word. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Again, very important there, for the Lord's sake. And we're going to get to that when we get back to Romans. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, and he goes on, or to governors, or so on and so forth. Now, we believe the Bible is the word of God, right? We believe the Bible is authoritative. So the Bible really only needs to say something once, very clearly, for it to be authoritative, right? If the Bible says something once, clearly, then we are to submit to it. Now, when it says something multiple times, that's like emphasis, right? Underlining, highlighting, bolding, you know, making it 60-point font so you could see it when you turn the page. It's like, there you go, submit to the governing authorities. So if I'm going to, as a Christian, subject myself to the governing authorities, I'm going to need a good reason. So look at the second half of verse 1. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So if you need a good reason why you need to subject yourselves to the governing authorities, how about this? Because God says so. <laughs> because God tells you to. It's a command. Is that good enough? Paul's answer boils down to this. All authority resides in God, who is the king and creator of all things, and earthly governments are all established by him. So how many earthly governments are established by God? All of them. Even the bad ones? Yes, even the bad ones. This is consistent with our confessional standards that we looked at earlier, which is why I looked at them. Or I should say, rather, our confessional standards are consistent with what Scripture is teaching. Every human government institution derives its authority from God and has been providentially established by him. 
Okay, every human institution has been providentially established by God. There's a story in Daniel chapter two when Nebuchadnezzar has the dream and he does he can't he doesn't know what the dream means and he's perplexed by it. So he calls all of his magicians and his you know prophets to come to him and he says, I've had a dream, not in the Martin Luther King way. I had a dream and I need you to interpret it. So in the the, the soothsayers are like, well, tell us what the dream is. It's like, no, if you guys are, you know, supposed to be what you are, you should be able to tell me the dream and then give me the interpretation. They're like, well, we can't do that. We don't know how to do that. So he's about to kill them all. And then Daniel steps up and says, I can tell you what the dream is and I can give you its interpretation. And in part of that, and before he gives him the dream in Daniel two, verse 21, he says, it is he that is God who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Now, the reason he says this is because the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, do you remember what that dream is? It's the dream of the statue with the, the gold head and the silver chest and the bronze hips and the, and the, uh, the iron legs with the clay toes. So it's this massive statue of different various precious metals. And it's basically a prophecy of coming kingdoms. These kingdoms will be established by God. He brings kings up. He tears them down. And he gives them a vision of successive empires. The Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and then finally the Roman Empire. Or the story of Jesus as he is being examined by Pontius Pilate. And Pilate tells Jesus, he's like, don't you realize that I have the authority to release you? And Jesus tells him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So both of these verses, and there's others, establish the fact that God raises kings God brings them down. He establishes governments. He overthrows governments. And that means even the wicked, evil rulers as well, like the Pharaoh from Exodus or Nero or Genghis Khan or Adolf Hitler or, or Mao Zedong, all of them, whether evil or good, have been sovereignly decreed and providentially established by God. Human government is a common grace institution set up by God to restrain sin by rewarding good behavior and punishing bad behavior. Again, it's from the confessions as well. Well, you may say, well, they don't always do that. Yeah, <laughs> they don't always do that. I know that. But consider this. Even a bad government is better than no government, right? Bad government is better than no government. Now, I know there are some extreme libertarians out there that actually preach a form of anarchy away with the government. And they fail to understand both what the government is established for, that it's established by God, but they also fail to understand human sin. They think that somehow we will just be good enough without the government. We don't need the government to rule over us. Well, what happens when you have that? It's like the book of Judges all over again, right? There was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Imagine the chaos and the debauchery that would ensue if we had a true 
anarchy. Literally no rulers. You can just do whatever you want. Another thing to consider, too, is that bad government is oftentimes a punishment for human sin. Calvin said that. He said, you know, evil government is God's punishment for human sin. Part of it is simply the consequences for bad choices, right? We get the governments we often vote for. You know, you, know, you voted for it. It's like, you know, it's, I, it's, I can't blame me. I didn't vote for this, right? Uh, but in other cases, it's direct judgment of God. A couple of uh, passages from Second Chronicles. Second uh, Chronicles 25, verse 20. Uh, King Amaziah, it says here, would not listen, for it was from God that he might deliver them into the hand of Joash because they had sought the gods of Edom. So here, King Amaziah is being judged because he would not listen to the voice of God, so he is sending another king to overthrow them. Or in Second Chronicles 32, uh, in those days Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received because his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came on him and on Judah and on Jerusalem. Again, human wickedness often comes in the the judgment on it often comes in the form of evil governments being established or good governments being overthrown. Now, the point Paul, though, wants to make here is that a true Christian one whose life is conformed to the will of God submits to the governing authorities, recognizing their ultimate authority is derived from God. Okay, that's verse one. Now the other verses are going to go a little quicker. So what is the implication then of verse one? If all authority comes from God and it is established by God, what is the implication? Well, look at verse two. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. If you do not submit to the governing authorities, you are not submitting to God. Now, again, I'm going to use all of my vast seminary experience and training to interpret this verse for you. Verse 2, in my expert opinion, says, Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Right. I mean, I think you don't need a seminary education to understand this, right? I could probably get by on my high school diploma on this one. Here's the logic for this. God has established all lower authorities. If we resist them, we resist what God has established, thereby resisting God himself. And resisting the authority God has established will result in receiving Condemnation, the word there is crema, uh, which means judgment or uh, you know, a, a settlement of some sort. So while this judgment can be from God himself, more than likely this judgment comes from the government, governing authorities whom we're resisting. Because look at verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, the governing authorities, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword. Again, the governing authorities, they do not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God. Again, that same phrase. An avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. 
Now, what verse 3 is giving us here is a general principle. Okay, it's like, it's like the Proverbs, right? You know, the Proverbs provide general principles of wisdom. If you live according to the way the Proverbs teach, generally speaking, all things being equal, you will receive good results. If you seek the path of wisdom, you will be rewarded. If you seek the path of foolishness, you will, not, you will face judgment or whatever. Not always, right? These are not promises, These are principles. If you want to see the exceptions, read the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes. Those give you the exceptions to the principles that you see in Proverbs. So here, verse 3 is a general principle. Governments usually punish evildoers and reward those who do good. Now, this is not always the case with all governments throughout human history. But even the bad ones have had some semblance of law and order. Right? In Nazi Germany, even the trains ran on schedule. <laughs> in, in the Roman Empire under Nero, the, the water ducks were there. They had the roads. Even bad governments can do good things and provide order. If you do well, generally speaking, you won't have to fear authority. It's typically the evildoer who has to fear the law. Again, not always the case. But in verse 4, I I emphasize this as I was reading through there, we see that the government is a minister of God to you for your good. And that word is diakonos, which means a servant. And this goes back to what we saw in verse 1. God has established every governing authority as his servant. They are to be servants for good. That is a qualitative good, a moral good, an excellency, an agathos. That's the word there. If you know anybody named Agatha, that's where you get the word Agathos. It means good. So to the one who does well, the state is a servant for good. But to the one who does what is evil, that one must be afraid. Because the state bears the sword as an avenger. Who as God's ministers bring wrath on the one who practices evil. And that's interesting because just in the prior passage last time we looked at it, it says, do not seek vengeance. Leave vengeance for the Lord. In other words, As an individual, you do not have the right to seek vengeance. That belongs to the purview of God. Now, God has given that authority to the state. The state bears the sword. It is an avenger of the Lord. It brings the wrath on the one who practices evil. The government is allowed to do that. So this, in a way, answers the question of capital punishment, right? You see all these debates about whether capital punishment is right or wrong, whether we should do it or not, but as God's ministers, again, as God's ordained servants, the state, as it were, is to carry out judgment on the wicked up to and including the death penalty. All arguments to the contrary fail because they do not take into account the fact that the state bears the sword. The sword is a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol of judgment. Now, I realize there are going to be all sorts of questions that can be raised at this point, and I'm going to address some of them at the end. But the bottom line still stands. We submit to the governing authorities because they are established by God, and to resist them is to resist God. And then finally, trying to move a little more rapidly here, verses 5 through 7, he draws his argument to a conclusion. In verse 5, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Because government is established by God, because government bears the sword, it is necessary. It is necessary to be in subjection to them. 
One more time, I'm going to employ my extensive interpretive skills to this verse. When I read it, it says it is necessary to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And that word there for necessary is an obligation. It's an obligation that is imposed or laid upon you. So is this a suggestion? Is it like a stop sign? You know, I'll stop if I feel like it. I may just roll through it. No, it's not a suggestion. It's a command. It is necessary. But notice the necessary, sorry, the necessity is imposed not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. In other words, don't simply submit to the government in order to avoid the sword. That's not the reason why you submit to the governing authorities to avoid the punishment. Right? I mean, as parents, as kids, you know, with your kids, you probably had to deal with that too. They would act good because they didn't want to get spanked. They didn't want to get punished. Oftentimes, you, you know, what you're trying to train them to do is to do the good thing because it is the right thing to do. But oftentimes you have to get them at least to do the good thing because in order to avoid the punishment. But we are not to submit in order to avoid the sword. We are to submit because it is the right thing to do. There is no qualification in the type of government, the quality of the government, or the moral integrity of the government. We submit because this is pleasing to God, because this is what a life as a living sacrifice does. And we cannot cherry pick which authorities to whom we submit. Well, I'll submit to Governor Ricketts because I agree with him, but I'm not going to submit to Joe Biden because I don't agree with him. That's not how that works. I'm sorry. I wish there were a loophole. That's not how that works. Then Paul wraps up this passage by showing us some of the actions that define this subjection in verses 6 and 7. Uh, for because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, to devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Who here likes paying taxes? All right, guys, don't rush to put your hands up. Who here? Okay, no one. No one likes paying taxes. No one likes to pay taxes. But if the government lawfully imposes a tax, we are required to pay it. Well, what if the government uses the money for evil purposes? Do we still have to pay them? Yes. If you can find that loophole in Scripture, please tell me, because I would love to reduce my tax burden. But I don't see that loophole here. I'm no fan of paying taxes, but Romans 13, 6, and 7 has no loopholes. Again, the government is God's servant. Our taxes go to support their work. So give to them what is due to them. Taxes, custom, fear, honor. This echoes the word of our Lord, right? You know, he told Peter, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Caesar is owed something, <laughs> and so is God. Now, as I bring this to a conclusion, how absolute is this? I laid out what this passage teaches, but are there some important qualifications that need to be noted? Like, can I ever disobey the state? Is there ever a time where I can disobey the state? And the answer to that question is yes. Because God is the supreme authority, right? And the government cannot force us to violate God's commands. Two very 
poignant examples of this. Again, going to the book of Daniel, this time in Daniel chapter 3. You know the story, right? That's the story of the fiery furnace. And someone convinces King Nebuchadnezzar that everyone should be praying to you at certain hours of the day. So you're going to ring the bell, and when the bell is rung, they're going to, everyone is going to have to bow down and worship you. Now, they were, this was a plot because they knew that the Jewish servants, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all often prayed to the Lord at certain times of the day. So they wanted to catch them not praying to the statues that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar set up. So, of course, then when the bell rings and everyone worships, they notice, well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are breaking your law. So they bring him in. They're about to throw him to the fiery furnace. And then as they're about to do that, they reply to the king and say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. In other words, are you going to bow to my statue? And they're like, ain't happening, king. If, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, they're very respectful. <laughs> they're not saying, screw you, king. No, they're saying, look, we want to obey you. We know it's right to obey you, but you're telling us to do something God has told us not to do. We're not going to do that. And if you have to throw us in a fiery furnace, so be it. We're still not going to do it. Or in Acts chapter 4, when the Sanhedrin brings Peter and John before them and says, do not preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter says, well, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And then later on in Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men. Again, the government is telling them to do something that, or to not do something that God has told them to do. The rising and falling of nations is oftentimes the judgment that God, the supreme judge, brings on wicked nations that do not administer justice properly in his name and for his honor and his glory. Now, briefly, in the time that's left, I want to talk about the American situation because some will argue that Christians cannot or should not protest what the government is doing because that is a form of not submitting to their authority. But I think this fails because our own Constitution and the Bill of Rights protects our right to peacefully, in the true sense of the word, not, not the peaceful protest that we saw last summer, but to really peacefully protest. And I think what makes the United States of America so different is that our governing authority is not centered in a person or a group of persons. Our governing authority is centered in what? The Constitution, right? Because all of our elected officials swear an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. The Constitution defines the limits and the extents of the powers of the several branches. And then the Bill of Rights comes along and further limits what the government can and cannot do, typically what the government can't do. So thus, I think there are times which is not only permissible, but even right in our obligation to exercise civil disobedience. Think of what Martin Luther King did. He protested the evil racist rule and laws of the South during the 60s, and that led to the Civil Rights Movement. But he didn't do so violently. They protested, and then when they were arrested, they submitted to that. 
So they still, even in their protests, sort of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to go along with their laws, yet when they were arrested, they, they took it. Just as they said, well, you throw us in the fiery furnace if you feels like you need to. We're still not going to obey your laws. Then there's also the so-called doctrine of what they call the lesser magistrate. This is... Um, this was brought up in Calvin and it's in other um, reform thinkers as well. So while we are to submit even to tyrannical governing authorities, it is seen as permissible for lesser magistrates to resist tyranny. For example, state governors or city and county officials can resist what are seen to be illegal or moral abuses of power or overreach by higher officials. The Tenth Amendment, right? The Tenth Amendment in the Bill of Rights says that whatever is not defined for the civil for the federal government is left to the states. So when there are times, there could be times where the federal government overreaches its authority. It is the duty of the states, governors, to resist that overreach. Problem is we don't do that as much as we should to in our country. And then finally, uh, sphere sovereignty, which I talked about. Uh, this idea of sphere sovereignty is that the state is not the ultimate authority and is not the only authority. I heard this in seminary. The state has the power of the sword. The church has the power of the keys. And the family has the power of the rod. Okay? So the church exercises the power of the sword for judgment and discipline. The church, or in the state, the church exercises the power of the keys of the kingdom, bringing, allowing to the table and removing from the table. And then the, the family has the power of the rod to discipline children. None of these spheres has the authority rightly to interfere in the sphere of another. The church is not the state and vice versa. Now, the problem as I see it today is that the state, having near completely rejected God via radical separation of church and state, is extending its authority to areas not within its God-ordained purview. So you see, oftentimes you see the state usurping family authority, or you see the state saying that the church can or cannot meet, or shutting the church out of the public sphere entirely. But there's, there's so much that could be said about this, and maybe I'll devote some question and answer time next week to looking at some of this. So if you have any questions, think about it and bring it to my attention. But next week I would like to go and basically finish Romans 13, but I will come back to this a little bit next week as well.